Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we'll walk you through a new federal court decision that upheld the Trudeau government's so-called assault-style weapons ban. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. We'll tell you about a new study that showed vaccine passports had almost no impact on vaccine uptake. But first, let's talk about a United States Supreme Court hearing that dealt with the question of whether government officials can block you on social media. Christine, tell us about that. There have been a lot of politicians blocking people that they don't like. I've actually been blocked by Canadian politicians. I was blocked by Glenn Murray, who was the environment minister in Ontario for a period, because he posted something about you know, like ride your bike to work. And I was, I replied, you know, you're cabinet minister, don't you have a taxpayer funded driver? And he blocked, he blocked me. Um, But this has been an issue in the United States. And there was actually a case where this was considered about the question of whether or not this is an issue of freedom of expression. On, on Tuesday of this week, the Supreme Court heard arguments in two cases that are about whether public officials are allowed to block constituents from their Facebook pages and other social media pages like their Twitter or X pages without violating the protection for freedom of speech, which is in the United States, it's their First Amendment, and in Canada, it's your Section 2B rights. And the first case that the Supreme Court in the U.S. heard was called Connor Ratcliffe v. Garniers, and a judge held that two members of a Southern California school board violated the free speech rights of parents when they blocked these parents uh, in response to repeated criticism posted in response to the school board members' Facebook and Twitter posts. Now, it went to appeal at the Ninth Circuit, and at the appeal court, the court reasoned that because of the close nexus between the trustees' use of their social media pages and their official positions, the decision to block these parents was government action, and the parents' free speech was violated when they were blocked by the trustees. The second case heard by the Supreme Court in this hearing was called Linkey and Freed, and it was an appeal from a sixth circuit appeal court decision that came to the opposite conclusion than O'Connor Ratcliffe and Gardner's had had come to. In Linkey, the court found that a Michigan city manager who maintained a Facebook page did not operate it as part of his official duties, even though he posted some work-related content there as well, including a lot of things related to COVID-19 updates um, and the things related to the city. And the, the appeal court said that he had not violated the First Amendment rights of a resident by blocking that resident who had criticized him repeatedly in the comments for his handling of the pandemic. And the question of when government officials um, are allowed to block you as a constituent or member of the public is actually a harder one than it appears. You know, my instinct is to say no, you know, Twitter and Facebook is not government action. but it perhaps isn't so simple. And I've actually done an episode of my television program, Canadian Justice, where, you know, my original thinking on this was challenged because my instinct was to say no, but 
perhaps I'm perhaps I'm not right. And perhaps I need to spend a little more time thinking about this. So Justice Kagan had noted that for President Trump, his Twitter account was mostly personal, but it was also an important part of how he wielded his authority. So by blocking the public, she asked, was he cutting citizens off from participating in democracy? And the U.S. government intervened in these Supreme Court cases uh, as an amicus, I guess, uh, and argued that the cases should be decided based on whether the Facebook page is public property or private property. For example, if they sign up with a government email address, it's public property and everyone has to be included. But if they sign up with a private email address, then it's private and they can you know, exclude and block people. And it seems that makes hearing, no sense. <laughs> I know. Like, it, it, it seems like a bad argument. And also, I don't know that many people are actually signing up. Sign up under my burner account or under yeah. my fake Zoom name, as we saw recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. I, I don't think that that's a super reasonable perspective. And it seemed like the judges at the Supreme Court weren't uh, weren't buying it either. Uh, now, there were also questions from Justice Gorsuch. He was concerned that if a public official can't block someone from their Facebook or Twitter, then the politicians' free speech rights might be infringed because they would no longer be able to post personal things that they want to post without it being perceived as government speech. And Justice Amy Comey Barrett, meanwhile, was concerned that if a public official has a private Facebook page and then gets asked by a Facebook friend about some government-related thing and they respond, they might accidentally transform their private page into a government page and then be required to let everyone follow and participate. And this might not be a good result. So there were a lot of questions and it will be very interesting to see where they draw the line. Obviously, in Canada, our freedom of expression framework and rights are are different, but it is established that Section 2B of the Charter protects not just speakers, but also listeners. So it's possible that blocking constituents from accounts could violate Section 2B of the Charter in the right fact scenario. And, you know, there there have been cases like this in Canada, as I, I mentioned, you know, I've I've been blocked for my snarky tweets. Uh, and there was an, another person, uh, a lawyer from Ottawa named Emily Teman, who was blocked in 2018 by former Ottawa mayor Jim Watson. And she sued him uh, for being blocked. And Mayor Watson initially argued he had a right to block uh, Teman and anyone because they were, she said, Teman and other people were harassing him. But eventually he agreed to unblocking and to just using the mute function instead, which is interesting because muting seems at least partly to defeat the purpose of unblocking someone since they won't see their messages. You know, I think if someone is posting horrible things under your account, you know, anti-Semitic or um, racist or bigoted, awful, cursing type things... I mean, I, I I block people on Twitter if they do that. I don't want that appearing underneath my name. I don't want people seeing going to read my tweets and seeing that. And I understand if a politician feels the same way. Um, and I also am am sort of of the view that if you if you really want to see what this politician is is saying, you don't even need a Twitter account to look it up. Like Twitter doesn't require you to log in to read the information. Um, if you're blocked, just 
log out and you can still see the tweets. Uh, it's, you know, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm buying it, but you know, there's these arguments are being made. So it'll be interesting to see where the Supreme court draws the line. And if that informs any Canadian uh, case law that might develop in the future, Josh, do you have any, any thoughts on this issue? Yeah, you, you, you point out that, you know, you can log out and still see the tweets. And I guess that's true, but I still have a bit of a concern if that's where, you know, the public conversation is really going down. Um, but it's complicated because at the same time, you know, politicians are people and they should be able to ma maintain some private Facebook page where they don't need to add every single resident. And so it's going to be really hard to, to get the balance right here. Um, I do actually have some experience with this stuff too, because in my uh, local neighborhood, we have this Facebook group and it's mostly messages like, you know, free soil in front of my house or like, you know, why did this restaurant close down or whatever? But it's actually also like sort of secretly run by this ally of the local city councillor, uh, Paula Fletcher, who I would argue is a communist. And most of, my, most of the posts in that group, like I say, are not political, but at some point a few years ago, it got very political. And uh, I was basically like, you know, people, we should stop electing that communist Paula Fletcher. And then I was like kicked out of the group. Um, and so I, I emailed the moderator and I was like, dude, like she was literally the leader of the Communist Party of Manitoba. And she's never like renounced communism. But she's like basically always pushing communist policies. I should be able to say that. And he basically was like, never contact me again. I will sue you if you contact me. This guy's a lawyer, by the way, like it's, he's he's um, he's a, a special person. But uh, yeah, so I can I, I just know how it feels to be excluded from that that public conversation. So I'm interested in, interested to see where this goes and also interested in this question of like whether public accounts like, for example, the city of Edmonton's account um, are interfering with freedom of expression when they close replies on their Twitter threads, like uh, I guess they're called X posts now. Um, but they did this recently in Edmonton when when they decided to light up a bridge with the colors of the Palestinian flag, you know, just about a week or so after Israel was attacked. And that was obviously a very controversial decision. So they closed comments. But if that's where people want to go and discuss things, then I feel like that might be interfering with their freedom of speech. I don't know. Um, Joanna, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I might be kind of on the strongest uh, strongest side that is less protective of politicians of all three of you. And so some of this, I haven't thought about this for very long. Um, so you guys may disagree with me, but I do think becoming a politician rightfully means that you cede some of your expectation of privacy. I also agree that there can be a fairly identifiable uh, separation between a private account and a public, you know, public official account. Actually, uh, before I even thought about this this morning, Aneda Polyev, uh, Pierre Polyev's wife, uh, popped up in my like friends you should add thing on Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook in a while. And it was, and you know, we had like 20 mutual friends, but it was very obvious that it was her private account. It was like a very informal, casual picture with her children. 
Um, so I think that there can be a distinction there. Um, but look, she's also an- not a politician, right? She's right. Politician that's that's true. Although she's, you know, she's a public figure, right? And she gives public speeches, but yes, yeah, she's not directly accountable. Um, so yeah, her having a private account, obviously I didn't friend her. Um, but think about in, in the analog world, like an MP could not block someone from calling their office or mailing their office. So why should they be able to block you? Granted, it's the catchment is much wider from engaging with them on an official account on social media. Um, So I tend to be less protective of like, I just don't really, I'm less concerned about the privacy rights of politicians not to have um, people who disagree with them in the comments than I am about the rights of the public to interact with our elected representatives. So where do you draw the line, though? Because Oh, I think know, that's I, very complicated. Yeah, I think that there's all of these, you know, I spend a lot of time, unfortunately, on X or Twitter. And there's a lot of, like, frankly, the losers who post awful, awful stuff. And if you can't block someone who posts, you know, something racist or horrible underneath your own profile you know it kind of implicates you to a, i mean maybe it doesn't but i I, it. I i i maybe not but i don't like those things appearing under my name so I've, no, i no i don't like it them. either but i first of all i don't really block because i tend to not follow my replies but if somebody does something say something really heinous you can reply and be like you're a psycho and i disagree and have that on record <laughs> um but then i just want to this is kind of a different thing but it's just too funny not to mention um kind of related do you remember christine um we had some conversations with doug judson who's a city councilor for fort francis yeah. Yeah, ontario yeah. and he was involved in a city debate where fort francis just was um changing the name of a road called colonization road it was actually just called colonization road in downtown <laughs> Fort Francis and the city council wanted to change it to um uh, Agami road which is an Ishwabe for at the shore um and so certain constituents thought that this was woke and bad and Judson basically just like trolled them like he I think his troll it was actually brilliant he just printed out a bunch of their racist uh Facebook comments and had it uh laminated onto a mug and would just yeah, post it was pictures so funny. with the mug and he was accused of harassing constituents um which clearly it was not clearly there was an active debate and there was an issue of his free of speech bullying it's a bullying, bullying. constituent <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't know how you bully like a 65 year old man on <laughs> who's on Twitter like g- grow up dude <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, I I am in favor of Doug Judson's uh, right to free speech in that instance. Uh, And I think he got the, well, Asher Honigman was his lawyer and they got the town to apologize to him for that, uh, I believe. Okay. So enough about SCOTUS. Uh, Josh, tell us about the liberals and gun bans. Yeah. So uh, federal court judge Catherine Kane has upheld the May 2020 liberal government order and council that banned the so-called military style assault weapons. And I'm not a gun owner. I don't think either of you are gun owners, but even if you're not, um, you should care about this decision because it's, it's really interesting and it impacts all kinds of different rights, like potentially property rights, the right to be innocent until proven guilty, and just the rule of law in general. So some background back in 2020, just days after that horrible Nova Scotia shooting that ended up with uh, 22 people dead, the Trudeau government announced new regulations that 
uh, prohibited about 1500 models of guns plus variants of those guns and guns with, you know, a bore diameter of 20 millimeters or a muzzle energy of 10,000 joules, whatever that means. And so like roughly overnight, 100,000 people just became potential criminals because they own these guns. And to avoid this problem, the government announced an amnesty allowing uh, these potential criminals to avoid prosecution if they sold their guns back to the government so that they could be destroyed. And this was supposed to happen by this past Monday, but this government being incompetent didn't actually get around <laughs> to, you know, creating the promised gun buyback program. I think they piloted something in PEI and it went terribly. So they just announced a few weeks ago that they're like pushing this deadline off until October 30th, 2025, conveniently after the next election. So this emergency of dangerous weapons will be dealt with in uh, no less than five and a half years. Um, so anyway, a number of gun owners, along with this group called Canadian Coalition of Firearms Rights, CCFR, launched legal challenges to this. And these challenges were consolidated into one very, very large case. And that was released um, um, on Monday, sort of to meet this, this deadline that uh, has now been pushed by two years. So anyway, the headline is this is a total victory for the federal government. But there were some things in there that I think will probably get appealed. So there were dozens of arguments, like I said, really, really long decision, but I do want to walk through some of the more interesting ones. Um, the first was that these regulations were ultra virus, the section of the criminal code that allows cabinet to ban specific guns, but requires that they form an opinion that the firearms are, quote, not reasonable for hunting or sport shooting and that, you know, they didn't form this opinion and this renders the decision unreasonable. And Alberta, which was an intervener, and CCFR both made this argument that if you interpret the that section of the code the way the federal government wants, then anything like, you know, a chair or a table could be a prohibited firearm. And I thought this argument was really kind of lame and uh, not, a, not a big fan of that argument is a bit silly. But a better version of that argument was put forward by some applicants, which is just that the decision um, by cabinet um, the reasons show that it wasn't justified, transparent, or intelligible, which is what's required by the administrative law case Vavilov. And this is based partly on the regulatory statement that the AG put out, which was focused basically entirely on public safety. And one could conceivably argue that public safety is not a relevant consideration when making the specific decision of whether a gun is quote, not reasonable for hunting and sports shooting. And the CCFR also pointed out that, you know, that by offering this three and a half year amnesty, which is now five and a half years, they've kind of undermined their argument that these guns are so inherently dangerous that they're not reasonable for hunting or, or sport shooting. Another version of this argument, which I thought was a little bit better, was that, um, you know, Cablet concluded that these, these guns are not reasonable for use in hunting and sport shooting, but at the same time, they said Indigenous people can still use them. And they said that's because of Section 35 and Indigenous hunting rights. But they're basically saying that these guns are so dangerous that they're not reasonable for hunting or shooting if you happen to be white or black or South Asian or whatever. But somehow, if you're Indigenous, they're still safe. And anyway, the court rejected all of those arguments and they said the regulations were reasonable. Um, a second argument, and to me, this is like a way better argument, is that cabinet unlawfully subdelegated the decision about which firearms are prohibited to this RCMP lab. So the government 
made variants of these guns and guns having these specific characteristics illegal, but it's really hard to know whether a specific model actually meets those qualifications. So in practice, the RCMP has been like testing out guns in its lab and then putting them on this thing called the firearms reference table, which says whether they're prohibited or not. And then RCMP and the crowns use this table to like decide whether to take away a person's guns. So parliament empowered cabinet to ban guns, but then it's actually the RCMP that is deciding whether guns are illegal or not. And this seems like a big problem because you can end up in handcuffs because the RCMP, which is not the lawmaker here, has just decided that your specific model of gun is, is a variant or is illegal. And there's no real way to challenge this, you like which guns go onto the RCMP's lists. The AG's expert actually disputed that and claims you can challenge it, but I'm really skeptical of that. And if you can challenge it, then it seems to me like the RCMP is like you're admitting the RCMP is basically making the decision about which guns are illegal, in which case it has been illegally subdelegated. Obviously, the judge did not agree with this, and she said the FRT is not legally blinding. It just, you know, assists law enforcement in determining which guns are illegal, and it's just, quote, an interpretive aid. So um, I'm not sure about that. I think that might be appealed. And then just really quickly, I'll go through some other arguments. So they, they made this argument that the regulations infringe Section 7, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Because they're not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, including the principle against vagueness. And this argument's based on the idea that firearms owners shouldn't go to jail because they have a firearm that's prohibited when the regulations are so vague that, you know, gun owners don't really have any fair warning that their gun is prohibited. Like to figure out if your gun is prohibited, you basically would have to take it apart and send it to like a specialized lab. And it's it's really quite vague. And interestingly, the court spent a huge amount of time on this argument in the section one justification and said, like, even if even if we're wrong, that this isn't a section seven issue, it, it would still be justified. So that's interesting. And then there were arguments um, that this violates section eight, the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. And the court said that's not engaged because nobody's been been um, charged yet, like these these uh, regulations haven't come into force. And that's true. So I guess we won't find out if Section 8 is is engaged unless someone gets um, arrested and risks jail. And same thing with Section 11, which is which uh, protects presumption of innocence. Um, the, the court said, you know, nobody's been arrested here yet. So we'll have to wait to see, I guess, if someone is, is arrested before we decide whether this violates presumption of innocence. So um, there was one last argument I want to mention just because I thought it was so crazy. And that's that Section 15 of the Charter basically protects gun owners because they're like a group, like an analogous group to like a race or a religion or a gender. And it's like, 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 come on, come on, guys. Like that's you're not being discriminated against as um, as a like a race or a gender. Uh, so a few bad arguments, some arguments that I think are a little bit better. And it sounds like. CCFR at least will be appealing. So, so stay tuned. I know that was a lot of info to, to throw at you. A really long decision, really interesting in my view. Joanna, do you, do you have thoughts on this? 
Well, it just, it sounds like the approach was the throw everything at the wall approach, which is, you know, a respectable litigation strategy. The part that hearing this for the first time sticks the most is the sort of vagueness and anti-democratic angles. And that is the type of thing that appeal courts tend to be more interested in than courts of first instance. So I actually think there's something there and hopefully they can get somebody to argue that who is an expert in administrative law and delegated powers. Um, But it does sound like the sort of fact pattern. This is something that we deal with a lot where There'll be a law, but, you know, the kind of fact pattern hasn't yet crystallized. Nobody's been charged yet. Uh, Having said that, many Jewish people I know here in Toronto are considering buying guns. So um, this may become a directly relevant issue and presumably want to know if the guns that they're buying are legal or not, um, simply because they don't trust the Toronto police to protect them if something were to go down in an immediate way. Um, Christine, what do you think? I have had so many people tell me to go and buy a gun in the aftermath of what happened on October 7th. I don't know a lot about guns, so it's really hard for me to give uh, an opinion about this. I don't tend to, not re- I don't really like guns. It's not something that is cool to me or interesting. I have fired a firearm at ranges on a few occasions, but it's not very appealing. It's kind of- It, it hurts. You really it hurts you my the ears. Jacket. Yeah. yeah. It's like- It hurts my ears and there's yeah. a kickback and yeah. I don't, oh. I don't really like it. Uh, I, I know I sound like such a, a weak ass little this is, little this is girl, a job but... for your husband let's be honest yeah. sorry now we're i don't know canceled. i don't know that he's he's <laughs> gonna want it one either um although he is american so they have quite a different culture around guns the thing that stood out to me two things from this first like i know i'm i've already confessed my ignorance but i don't understand this concept of guns that are suitable for sport shooting like i don't my understanding and look i admit i'm i'm ignorant is that sport shooting is you know target practice and i don't quite understand why you couldn't do that with any gun like i've gone to ranges and people use all kinds of guns like really ones that seem like these automatic weapons you know i've been to the nra range in in virginia so like i've seen all kinds of that makes me sound like I I love guns or something. I don't. I don't know much about guns, but I did do this. No, one, I, one I, I know. I know. I know the guy that took you. It's a mutual yeah. friend. Yeah. So <laughs> Josh Blackman, shout out, shout out. <laughs> yeah. So look, I, I Josh, maybe you know it's, when they talk about sport shooting, uh, I just thought that's you know target shooting. And how is one gun suitable for target shooting and another gun is not? Like yeah, presumably you could shoot anything know. at a target. I don't know all the details, but I do know it came up in the case that, you know, there are people that um, they compete in competitions in the U.S. And some of the guns that they would compete in those competitions with are now banned. And there's also um, I think there's a carve out, um, although this might be Bill 21, I might be getting it mixed up. There's a carve out for uh, like Olympic sport shooters because uh, apparently they uh, I don't know. Anyway, it shows you how little I know about it about it too but 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 the interesting legal point for those of us who know nothing about guns is just this idea of like what's reasonable for you know sport shooting even mean like did they mean reasonable in the sense of you know necessary for sport shooting or 
Yeah, and I think that's what it's saying. It's saying cabinet makes that determination of what's reasonable or not. Like yeah, it's sort and the of best a, person who you know, talks about this is Matt Gurney, who actually, you know, is like a bro who's into guns, and he's just like, the liberals do not know jack s about guns. So, like, yeah. I can guarantee you that they haven't arrived at this on any rational basis. Like, it's complex and requires some know-how to, like, distinguish between right. categories of guns. And yeah and like i the three of us are real dummies yeah well, i don't yeah. i don't know these are just the things conceptually that come out stand out to me um so i'm glad mm -hmm. i'm not the only one who thinks you know that seems like a, a kind of a nuance that might be missing here um and then the other thing i agree with joanna about is this delegation of authority to different um different bodies that are not supposed to wield that authority and you know, I've, I've talked before about my skepticism about the expansion of the administrative state and how authority gets delegated to all kinds of bodies and tribunals and and they have zero democratic accountability. And I mean, there's almost no accountability in general. And when we talk about the the expansion of the administrative state, that's what we're talking about, that there's no real way to appeal some of these decisions. There's no way to know who is even making the decisions or have a say in who makes them. So we saw a lot of problems during the pandemic with the delegation of authorities to so-called experts. And a lot of our rights were seriously implicated because these experts who know so much better than the rest of us made choices that resulted in huge restrictions to our liberty. So I, I'm generally skeptical of this delegation. And it seems like that looks like a promising line of reasoning um, or argument. Uh, in this case. Joanna, anything to, to add to that before heading to your news headline of the day? No, I already said everything that I can muster to say about guns. Uh, so let's talk uh, pretty briefly about vaccine passports. Remember the QR codes, vaccine passports, or, or maybe <laughs> you don't. Um, yeah, so there's been a new study from the Canadian Medical Association Open Journal um, that has concluded, so, you know, not a tinfoil hat organization, uh, that has concluded that the controversial vaccine passports, which were introduced by all the provinces in 2021, I think barring maybe Northwest Territories, but I could be wrong, to boost vaccine coverage, only had the result of increasing the number of people with a first dose by less than one percentage point. So the study looked at Ontario and uh, Quebec, and the researchers noted that both provinces already had more than 80% uh, vaccination coverage. And they found, I found this the most interesting, that the impact, the so the inducing effect was largest amongst the group of age 12 to 39. So people who were at the a very low risk of severe impacts or hospitalizations from catching COVID. Um, and their conclusion, which seems correct, is that the reason why the vaccine passports likely had a negligible effect on people who were holdouts, because these were already people who were suspicious of health authorities and government. So it actually made them dig their heels in. Uh, and they conclude that the group not yet vaccinated by the time of the announcements may have largely been composed of individuals experiencing longstanding systemic and persistent ba barriers to vaccination or vaccine 
mistrust. Um, so as we've talked about many times, and especially Christina's talked about many times, uh, we also took the position that vaccine passports were had constitutional problems. So we directly um, argued that BC's vaccine passport, which didn't have workable medical exemptions, um, were directly unconstitutional and a violation of equality rights. Um, but going back to to remind of what the sort of public rationale of these policies were, uh, Justin Trudeau noticed noted that medical exemption to vaccine mandates to travel, so uh, somewhat different from the passports to go into restaurants, but basically the same idea and certainly the same rationale to induce the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. He said the medical exemptions would be exceedingly narrow, specific, and to be honest, somewhat onerous to obtain. Um, this was posed as a feature and not uh, not a bug. Um, and this was already sort of late in the game when it was clear that the vaccines were both not effective against transmission and also, you know, has to be noted, not without the rare possibility of serious side effects. Um, but we didn't actually litigate this point um, because we didn't think that there was much hope of it being successful, to be honest. But I will say candidly now, it was always our position at the CCF that with or without medical exemptions, we were very skeptical of the constitutionality under privacy grounds, under Section 7 life, liberty and security of the person grounds, um, that vaccine passports were likely unconstitutional, medical exemptions or not deputizing businesses to check your private medical information, which was seen as uh, to call vaccine status medical status was seen as like a dog whistle in 2021. But let's be honest, it's it's a private <laughs> private piece of information about taking uh, a medical intervention. I don't think that there has to be anything tin hat about that. Um, and now we know that if the rationale was to induce higher rates of vaccination, um, rather than, you know, reduce transmission at restaurants and bars and cinemas, which it had to be the former, because by the time these vaccine passports were rolled out, we already knew the vaccine didn't stop transmission, didn't stop you from giving or getting uh, the virus. Uh, it obviously failed. Um we were talking about in an interview about our book, Pandemic Panic, which is now shipping from Amazon. We'll put a link in um, that one of the refreshing things about talking about these things now, Christine made the point yesterday, um, is that the, the climate is a little less crazy. We can talk about these things. We can assess these things without it getting down to, but you want to kill my grandmother. Um, and so I think now that, you know, tensions have simmered down a little bit and now we're all outraged about Israel and Gaza. Instead, um, there's a window to talk honestly. Um, and on a more disappointing note, I noticed that a private member's bill brought in the House of Commons to block future vaccine passports or mandates um, was voted down. So anyways, hopefully the government will get the message. Uh, Christine, I know that you have written and thought a lot about this issue. Any any thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I just want to clarify that our position absolutely always was that there were constitutional problems with the vaccine passports. We made that position clear throughout the pandemic. I tweeted about it m multiple times. That was always our position. And when we argued this case in British Columbia, um, which was a case about medical exemptions, we said, 
like our lawyer in front of the judge said, we have, we take issue with all vaccine passports, but we are only challenging this medical exemption for this case. Look, litigation is strategic. Litigation is strategic warfare. And we had been through at that point, two years of the pandemic. And all we had seen from the courts were repeated rejections of legal challenges to government actions, huge amounts of deference. So what we did was we we wanted to work with people who had incredibly compelling stories and help people who needed urgent assistance. And these were these people who had um, medical conditions that prevented them from being vaccinated. And just to reiterate how urgent the situation was, one of the girls, the, the, the teenage girl we were working with, Erica, I asked her if she had ever considered, and she had pericarditis. She'd went to get vaccinated. She had uh, developed after her first dose, a rare form of heart inflammation called pericarditis that makes you ineligible for a second dose. And I asked her, are you, do you, did you ever consider going to get your second dose because you were just so sick of the government blocking you from going about your life. And she said, I think about it all the time. And that would be to the detriment of her health, right? Like the government was setting up a world where all of her choices were being removed from her path. And the only path that was left open was either social isolation for an indeterminate amount of time or a medical choice that could would hurt her, that her doctors advised against. And I just had so much concern about Erica and what the government was doing to her. Uh, and I thought, that's such a compelling case. We have to help this girl. I think that that's, it's a case like that where there's a possibility of a win, even if it's on a narrow basis. I think we absolutely need a finding that what the government did to Erica is wrong. Uh, and I am optimistic about it. I think what they did to everyone is wrong. But like what happened to Erica is just egregiously bad. So, you know, I just want to make it clear what our position always was, was there's constitutional problems, um, but we wanted to take a case that we thought had the highest chance of success. Josh, anything to add there? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I was just thinking about how a judge in, in one of the cases said that, you know, having to stay in a very expensive um, quarantine hotel, even if you had really good reasons to leave the country, you know, to, to see like maybe a dying relative or something, how that was sort of a first world problem. And the courts were just, they were so dismissive of people's rights and it, it's really frustrating. There's actually a case this week about, I'm not sure if you'll remember this, but the government took away employment insurance from people fired because they exercised their constitutional rights to choose what vaccines go in their body. And so this stuff is, is still going on. I hope people don't forget. And uh, on the topic of, of not forgetting, um, it's perfect timing for your book because we are already starting to to forget some of these things and uh, just going through pandemic panic. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've started reading it. And it's it's just crazy to think back that, and think about, you know, just two or three years ago, some of the, the, the stuff that we were forced to endure that never should have happened in, in a free country. Um, I think we better go to break. Um, but when we come back, Christine, you're going to give us a freedom update, I think partly about the book. So, yeah, that's right. Okay, we'll, we'll go to break now. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. 
In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so I don't have a huge update this week. I will just note two things. The first is about the book that Joanna and I wrote, Pandemic Panic, and it is still a number one bestseller on Amazon on pre-order. And there is finally a shipping date. Our supporters who have pre-ordered the book on Amazon received a notification that the book is going to arrive between November 9th and 13th. So if you have not yet ordered the book, please do. It's actually on sale on Amazon right now. It's uh, $20. And we, before coming on this podcast, I was on the phone with our publisher and he let me know that Amazon has sold, I think, 1,600 copies of the book, which is absolutely tremendous for a first-time author. He said it's the most in pre-order he's ever had uh, or the second most he's ever had as a publisher, uh, you know, public policy books in, in Canada are not, you know, going to sell at the same rate as Britney Spears memoir, but selling 1600 in presale is absolutely tremendous. And we are hoping it's going to be enough to get us onto some of the, uh, Globe Mail or Toronto star bestseller lists. In addition to having been on the Amazon bestseller list for, for weeks now. So we're just so thrilled, uh, with the, the progress of this this project uh josh you you have actually read part of it uh do you have any early thoughts on the book so i wasn't sure what it was going to be like and i thought you're, you're either going to write a book that's going to be interesting to you know people that are concerned about rights but don't know anything about law and that'll be like a you know a really compelling narrative or you get to write a book that sort of catalogs all of the the legal cases and is like going to be a good resource for for lawyers and like constitutional lawyers but i didn't think you'd be able to achieve both and that's what you've done you've done like a compelling narrative that also just you know for for the history books basically lists out all the cases and how how those cases turned out and what the the, the case law that applies actually is. So I'm impressed that it's going to be interesting for, you know, both lawyers and non-lawyers alike. So, yeah, so thanks, congrats. Josh. It's impressive. Thanks, thanks yeah, my, Josh. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. It's been such a, a labor to get this done. Uh, my first book. And, and I think Joanna is your first book as well, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I had an edited volume attacks on the rule of law from within. Um, I remember a funny story about that. I posted an Instagram story back when Christine was on Instagram saying, baby's first book posting that which I co-edited with Maxime Santillal and he, she was like oh did your boyfriend write a book and well I was like, I, you said baby I was like I was oh, like, like I'm, I'm baby <laughs> <laughs> and Maxime Santillal is not my boyfriend just to be yeah I, I thought I, I was like I didn't even see your name on the book I just saw the caption you made and then I was like oh that's so anti- <laughs> Woman, That's so me. sexist. Christine. Oh, does your so husband sexist. write a book? Yeah, yeah. No, it's so awful. It's like no. That's like your, it's my your book. second sexist comment of, of this podcast, implying yeah, that women right. can't be interested in guns. I made the first one when I told her her husband should buy a gun. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> to true. protect his family. <laughs> so we're we're even. <laughs> okay, so that that's it for me. Why don't we move on to our bad legal takes? Sure. Uh, my bad legal take is also related to guns. It's a bit of a theme today. And this is not because some rude commenter left us a review that says there's too much estrogen on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that, but anyway. Well, he's not going to like this week. 
No. So my bad legal take, yeah. So basically, this is some comments made by a professor in a Senate committee hearing. And at committee, this professor, Pam Pometer, who's an Indigenous activist, and she's also a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. She was there talking about guns, and she was trying to say that Indigenous people support banning more guns, despite the fact that the Assembly of First Nations and many individual Indigenous people have raised a lot of concerns about um, new laws that would further restrict guns. Anyway, so Pometer told the committee that Indigenous people are the only people in Canada that have a constitutional right to bear arms, and that's by virtue of, quote, treaty rights, Aboriginal rights, and the right to protect our territories, she said. And to me, this is either like a very bad or completely dishonest take because it's true the Constitution recognizes and affirms Aboriginal rights. But to be an Aboriginal right, the practice has to be integral to the distinctive culture of the Indigenous nation prior to contact with Europeans. And so while this does include hunting, um, I don't think it necessarily includes hunting with a rifle because that was not a thing at contact between you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And, you know, rights can can evolve and they can take modern forms. But it's hard to see how that translates into like a Section 35 right to bear arms if you're Indigenous. And not only were there no guns at contact, but just like non-Aboriginal rights, there is an infringement test. So governments, just, just like with Section 1, they can infringe Indigenous rights as long as they meet the test that the court has has laid out. And I think the most galling part of this is where she talks about how Indigenous people apparently have a right to bear arms to protect their territory. And that's pretty inflammatory because, you know, the territory of Indigenous people is under both domestic and international law entirely with Canada. And if Indigenous people did try to use guns, they would face criminal charges and possibly things like, you know, insurrection charges. So I think that's a a risky thing to say. And you know, she's kind of right that the court has said, and the Supreme Court said this in a case called Hasselwander, that there is no, quote, constitutional right to bear arms. And it's obviously true that in our charter, it's not, you know, directly written there. And the English Bill of Rights um, does mention a right to bear arms that's limited, but that's not directly incorporated into our our law in Canada. So um, I can see I can see where she got that part of it. But there was a case, Montague, where this criminal defendant argued for a constitutional right to bear arms and the Crown actually conceded that we have a right to self-defense and a right to use firearms for self-defense in, quote, appropriate circumstances. And the judge noted that this right to self-defense may be protected under Section 7, the right to uh, not be deprived of security of the person except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And this went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal, they gave a rather confusing decision, which did say that there's no constitutional right to possess firearms, but also sort of said this, you know, Section 7 right to self-defense with a gun may be a thing. So it's not actually as clear cut as it first appears. But what is true is that Indigenous people don't have some special right to bear arms. Certain Aboriginal nations have a right to hunt and that 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 in practical terms is going to mean they have guns but this idea of like like a freestanding right to defend their territories with guns the canadians don't have i'm sorry no that's mm-hmm. just crazy so anyway um 
Joanna, what's your bad legal take? So mine is from a Twitter professor, Amir Ataran, um, who's a real piece of work, but we won't get into that. And he was commenting on the announcement this week that the Ford government in Ontario um, has plans to mandate Holocaust education for high school students. And he tweeted that this is a problematic decision, giving one religion preference in public schools. The charter forbids that. Better to teach about genocide writ large, not just the Holocaust. Okay, uh, teaching about the Holocaust is not prioritizing a religion. So first of all, the Holocaust was a definitive historical event, probably the definitive, arguably, historical event of the 20th century. Um, but even, even at that, although obviously Jews, six million were killed, they were the primary targets and victims of the Nazi evil. Um, but Jews weren't the only group killed. Um, Roma gypsies, uh, anyone who's physically or uh, mentally disabled, uh, LGBTQ individuals, the Poles, other Slavic peoples, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, members of political opposition groups, um, many non-Jewish peoples were also swept up in the atrocities. But even if it were only Jews, you know, six million Jews who were killed, uh, as I mentioned, this is 20th century history. It caused a realignment of global superpowers. It is impossible to understand why the state of Israel is such a moral imperative for it to exist without understanding the atrocities of the Holocaust, which was not the first time genocide was committed against Jewish people, but was by far the most sweeping and made the issue just impossible to ignore. It's also understood by political theorists as the first totally modern and industrialized genocide. It cannot have happened without widespread industrialization. It's a very important moral lesson um, for all modern developed states. It was a genocide that happened to a group that was integrated into every business, government, cultural elite sector of European society. It led to the creation of the United Nations, uh, also following World War II, of course. And it happened in living memory. My own immediate family member, uh, my grandmother, is still here to tell the story, although, of course, um, she is one of vanishing few of that generation. And from what I've read, Gen Z and I guess it's called Gen Alpha, are completely ignorant. Many of them are not aware that the Holocaust happened at all. So no, Amir Ataran, teaching the Holocaust is not prioritizing a religion. Uh, Christine, what's your bad legal take? Oh my gosh. I, I feel like it's always the professors, right? It's always- Why is it always they, the they professors? They have the worst opinions. <laughs> Terrible. So mine is also from a professor. It's one who I featured on on bad legal takes before because his takes are just terrible. So so this is from Joshua Seeley Harrington, a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, also formerly known as Ryerson University. And he tweeted, remember this genocide. Remember what individuals, organizations, and governments prioritized. Remember how they misrepresented the past and present. Remember the chasm between their beliefs and actions. Remember who they vilified. Remember their cowardice. Remember their complicity. Now, the professor does not say which genocide he is referring to. I mean, perhaps it's to Hamas's genocide. Their calls for genocide in their charter. Uh, perhaps it's 
about Hamas's leadership ensconced comfortably in Qatar, who regularly calls for not just the extermination of all Jews from Israel, but all Jews from the planet. Uh, perhaps it's about Hamas's acts of genocide entering Israel and massacring civilians on October uh, 7th. But you know, I don't think so. If you recall, this is the same professor who had absolutely nothing to say about Hamas's massacre on October 7th, other than to retweet in the immediate mass aftermath of a actual attempted genocide by Hamas, a chilling message from an American academic. Uh, the retweet was all scholars who have even once used the term decolonization for the advancement of their careers. Please, please note that now is the time to show solidarity with Palestine and all occupations. So I, I just don't think that this genocide tweet is about Hamas's genocidal calls. I think he is referring to Israel's response to Hamas's attempted genocide. You know, Israel, a state that was officially founded uh, following a genocide of Jews in the Holocaust. And look, the professor knows full well that what Israel's doing, that their response to that massacre is not a genocide. Genocide has a very clear meaning in law. It's it's defined in, in a number of different statutes, like the UN Convention on the Prevention of Genocide in the Rome Statute. It's for the purpose... Uh, you know, I'll read the one from from the Rome statute. It says genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group or first forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And look, those those enumerated things uh, happen in, in every war. The, the killing of members of a group, the killing of civilians happens in every war. What makes the definition of genocide genocide is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a a ethnic or racial or religious or national group. And I think everyone knows full well that Israel is taking great pains to avoid civilian casualties. And that's not to say that civilian casualties are not occurring. Of course, they are occurring. And of course, it's terribly, terribly tragic. And I think all of us are horrified at the loss of life from this war between Israel and Hamas. But we also know Hamas bears a lot of the responsibility for the civilian deaths happening in Gaza by preventing people from from leaving or encouraging civilians not to, to leave the northern uh, part of Gaza where the active fighting is taking place. And Israel and also putting their command centers in civilian exactly. centers in northern Gaza. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, actually I just did an episode of my program Canadian Justice about the laws of war and international armed conflict and and what Hamas does when they put their um, their military operations within the civilian population. It could constitute all kinds of treaty op uh, violations. So we know that uh, Hamas's entire operation on October seventh was a war crime. And we also know that Israel has taken great pains to tell civilians that they don't want civilians to be harmed, that they're asking them to leave. 
that they are ceasing um, hostilities when um, medical um, transports are taking place at the Rafah passing to Egypt. So the professor knows that this is not a genocide. And all he's doing is trying to misinform the public to rile up sentiment against Israel and against Jews. And if he was concerned, if he was truly concerned about genocide, he would have said something on October 7th instead of praising, essentially praising through these retweets, the the massacre of civilians of Israeli children and grandmothers and babies. Uh, so I'm 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 regularly disgusted by what I see from this individual on social media, and this was no exception. That's it for me. <laughs> on that happy note. Yeah, that's a that's a heavy end to the podcast. Um, as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. Just a reminder: you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please donate on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.